0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker
1: is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And welcome everyone. <coughs> it's always good to be conscious. Uh, the places we're in. And uh, some of you know that in the Buddhist teachings, one of the more subtle, challenging concepts is this teaching on anatta, the impersonal nature or the not-self nature of experience. And it always seems counterintuitive because it seems so clearly true that I'm here, you know, and this is about me. So but just in a really simple way like I always like to remind people to take a moment and appreciate how nice it is being together you know the fact that 80 or 90 people have gathered on a Wednesday night to sit quietly together and to learn how to be clearly aware but at the same time relating wisely in a non-reactive way to whatever it is we're clearly aware of it's sort of Amazing that people would want to do that. And then this teaching of Anatta, like just to notice that effect, like being here, part of who I am or what I am or how it is for me now is a function of being here. If I were at a bar or for out playing tennis or sitting home and watching TV, there would be a different mark. The reality would be quite different. So just in this very simple way, to get a sense of who we are, how it is for us, is very much a function of the environment. I mean, even on that simple level, we get a sense of how impersonal it all is. We may think we're reasonable, a reasonable person, but, you know, if somehow the zombies moved into Minneapolis and we were fighting for our life, we might not be so reasonable, you know, or if we were in some war zone or, you know, wherever. So that this kind of kindly person we think we are is really arising out of certain causes and conditions. And if somebody looks at us the wrong way, or like I was uh, visiting my dad, who's uh, in a rehab center right now and in the middle of the day coming back from southwestern suburbs... And was uh, like an hour or 45 minutes just getting from 94 to 394 is backed up. And it seems like a personal insult. <laughs> and I noticed, I noticed how much I wanted to stay so close to the car in front of me so none of those yeah. other people could cut in at the last minute. And uh, just noticing how that situation draws up a certain quality in my mind and just to see who we are in different ways. And instead of judging like I could have judged myself, but instead we can just get interested that who we are is really coming out of the environment. Now, the interesting thing is we're not just doomed. Like if we're always in difficult or negative environments, we're not just doomed to be a bad person or a suffering person. Because one of the things that is true about any moment is not just the sort of external environment like being in traffic, but the wisdom that we bring to that moment, that also makes that moment the way that it is. And this is always at play. It doesn't matter if we're in a war zone or in poverty or in a situation where we're oppressed or have all the power or whatever particular situation we might be in there's always this possibility for the mind or the heart to be relating to this experience with wisdom, not being confused by the external conditions. Relating wisely means that the mind sees them clearly as just conditions, not taking them personally. So if they're unpleasant, the mind understands these conditions are unpleasant, but it's not personal. But it doesn't mean we don't respond to the unpleasantness of the moment or the pleasantness of the moment. It just means we don't get contracted due to some story that it's personal, that the traffic may be unpleasant being in traffic, but it's not personal. Or having a difficult interaction with our friend or partner, it may be really unpleasant, may be really challenging for us. But ultimately, it's not personal. The way we are together, that particular dynamic that is difficult, where did that come from? We can say, conventionally speaking, we say, well, I'm, I treated her this way or she treated me this way. But all of that interaction, it arose conditionally. Like, where did that pattern come from where I said this and she said that? Right? That's a conditional impersonal arising do, coming out of this great ocean of conditioning, programming, basically. It doesn't mean we're not responsible in a conventional sense. It's very appropriate to understand that we're responsible for our actions, our words, what we do, what we don't do, what we say, what we don't say. There are consequences how we are in the world. But we don't need this neurotic or this toxic identity, like imagine just being in that traffic or whatever it is for you that sometimes pushes your buttons, not getting the respect, not having the circumstances be the way that you want them. It's just so interesting how it feels personal. And then that it feeling personal allows us to personally react. It It is the cause for the personal reactivity. If we don't take the moment personally, We're not, in a sense, going to personally react by getting tight. Tightness, whatever form, whatever that manifestation of tightness, it comes out of taking it personally. You can just track this all day long, like whatever the experience that it is that is arising for you. Just track all day long how the mind is relating. Is it taking it personally or not? And you'll see this very clear correlation. When the mind is taking something personally, the mind or the heart is personally tight. And when the mind is not taking things personally, there is that direct experience of release, the release of not taking it personally. And it's the missing of this correlation that causes so much suffering in our lives. We we get tight and we want to do something about it, but we always do something about it from the point of view of taking things personally. Like we even take the contraction that comes from taking things personally, we take that personally. We personally react to it. It makes us tight. So this is this negative feedback loop. Buddha In Buddhism, we call it samsara, the cycles of suffering. How suffering replicates itself over and over again. So in this practice, we're learning to see this. In this chapter from uh, Food for the Heart, this is a book we've been following for about a year now. Uh, it's not really written by Ajahn Chah, but it's based on talks he's given to the lay people in Thailand and the monks and nuns in Thailand back when he was teaching. He died in 1992, I believe, and uh, transcribed and made it into a book form. And it's a very powerful collection of teachings. He's a real salt of the earth, wise person, great Buddhist monk and meditation teacher, trained a number of. Well-known medi- uh, Western meditation teachers, and uh, this chapter thirty-one is a chapter based on a talk he gave to a woman at the time of death, or on her deathbed, and her family that was there with her. And I guess she was a longtime supporter of Acharya, this well-known monk. So he had went to see her uh, near the time of her death. And it's just sort of interesting, well, what, what do you say to somebody who's died? Some of you have been in this situation, maybe many of you have. And it's always interesting, what do you say, or how do you be there in a way that's supportive? And, uh, you know, ultimately the teachings of the Buddha are very pragmatic. It's not a set of beliefs. It's really a set of practices that when these practices are taken up, they have a very real, direct effect. And when they're not taken up, it doesn't matter if you believe in the Buddha's teachings, you know, you have to actually do the practice. Because, in you know, in this school, you know, this way that the Buddha taught, there's none of this magical, I can transform your suffering for you. Because it really arises from an understanding that the suffering we experience, a sense of, alienation or separation that we experience, the sense of hostility and greed or neediness that we experience, that is being generated right here in the mind, in the heart. It seems like it's out there. You know, we see somebody who has something we want, and we think that the fact that that person has the car that we want or the partner that we want or the iPhone that we want, that that's the cause for being upset. But actually it's not that way. We see something, but the mind does something with that perception. And that with that mind, what our mind does with that perception is the cause of the suffering. It's not out there in the world. Even if we're being oppressed in some way, I know this is a provocative thing and, and an easy thing for me to say, but even uh, when we're oppressed or when we're oppressed by sickness, let alone oppressed by injustices in the world, The real suffering, life may be miserable because we're sick, because we're oppressed, but the real suffering is what the mind layers on top of it. It's the hate, it's the victimization, it's whatever the expression of that contraction that the mind gets involved in. That's more intensely stressful than the actual stress of living in a war zone, being sick, being oppressed in different ways and it doesn't in any me in any way sort of uh, ask us to like not address the oppression, the injustices, the illness, the war whatever that is so difficult in our life. but it's just understanding that there's two things that need to be addressed in any moment of our life. It's like what we call the external circumstances always calling for a response. You know, as long as we're alive, the moment is calling for response. Even when we're ready to go to bed at night, and we're putting our PJs on, that's our response to that moment, calling into bed. Or standing up and saying what needs to be said. So, every moment we have to, on this conventional level, we need to respond to the moment. But, these spiritual teachings coming from the Buddha... We're saying, and there's another thing we're equally responsible for and actually turns out to be even more relevant, but in no way frees us from this other responsibility of responding on this conventional level, which is getting interested in how the mind is relating. In this world of having experience and responding to experience, which is what we call conventional, ordinary reality, There's this other part that we're mostly oblivious to just because we're so busy, so caught up in that conventional level of reality, which is reflecting on the quality of the mind that is relating to experience and its response to experience. What is the mind, how is the mind holding that or understanding this having experience and responding to experience? I mean, one of the ways that the mind relates to it is it takes it personally. So clearly, there's no way we could deny the fact that there is experience being known and there's the responding to the experience being known. But how do we understand that? What are we telling ourselves, in a sense, about that? What is the belief, the underlying belief or view about what we call conventional reality, experience, and responding to it. So it's very interesting to look at this chapter, and I'm sure it's online somewhere. The title is Our Real Home. You could even Google Ajahn Chah's name if you don't have the book, Ajahn Chah's name with that title, Our Real Home. And you'll probably get this because I know it's been published in other um, online books that the monasteries have provided over the years. And he gives her two, basically gives her two teachings. One is You know, at the time of death, often there's a lot of pain, let alone the emotional pain of of letting go of your loved ones and letting go of control, but just the actual physical pain of the dying process can be quite intense. So Ajahn Chah, in different ways, uh, probably she has had a lot of experience with mindfulness of breathing, so he emphasizes that, but just the The simple instruction that, you know, there's so much we assume we should be thinking about. You know, like, I might not see you tomorrow. Your kids or your family members around you. um, What do I want to say? Or how can I manage this pain? But sometimes we need this other strategy in life. This is an essential strategy to have. And again, it it goes back to what I was saying before. We need to know how to respond to the conditions of the moment, but it's also really important to know how to just leave everything alone. And one of the things we learn in meditation practice, if you sit every day, and let's say you work with mindfulness of breathing, of course there are many strategies, many meditation techniques you can work with, but if you work with mindfulness of breathing as an example, then just bringing the attention to the breath is a profound letting go. I mean, there's so many things I could worry about, complain about, wonder about, fantasize about, judge you about, judge myself about, regurgitate, regurgitate something from the past, you know, imagine something out into the future. There's literally endless things I could do with my mind. But I'm letting go of all of that in order to know the next in-breath coming in and the next out-breath going out just imagine what a profound, existentially profound thing that is for a human being to do. To put everything down for a while, and especially if you can do this with some continuity, moment by moment by moment by moment, with enough interest, enough wholeheartedness in the attention. So there's no breaks or gaps in that stream of knowing the breath coming in, coming in, coming in, knowing the breath going out, going out, going out, coming in, coming in. Coming in going out, going out, it's really a practice of putting down the world, what we call the external world, or the conventional world, or the world of, you know, experiencing and responding and doing, that's being put down, it seems like we're doing something like I'm paying attention to my breath, but that's just the initial move, once you start to pay attention to breath, even the thought that I'm paying attention to my breath ends up being an obstacle, Right? Thinking that I should be paying attention to my breath is not being present with the breath. So to the degree that we have those moments, those periods of time, where there is that sustained present moment awareness of the breath or any meditation object that you're working with, then we experience something that's actually simple but quite extraordinary, which is we experience a moment of peace. The peace of not being engaged in the world of good and bad, or this and that. Because we've had to let it go to be with the breath. And the interesting thing is, there's something that happens as you get this sustained, mindful attention with the breath, or again, any object that you might use, something begins to transform. So let's say, you know, a few seconds, I'm with the breath, just knowing the in-breath coming in, coming in, out-breath going out, going out. Well, after a few seconds of that, literally, it doesn't take long, there's initially, of course, we're just feeling the sensations, right? Like I often would use the tip of my nostrils, so I'm just noticing that very ordinary experience of touch, right? The air flowing in is touching the little hair there and the skin of the nostrils, and I'm sensing that, touching, 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 touching. But after a while, after a few seconds of that continuity of mindful attention, well then, the fact that the mind isn't scattered but has collected itself in that experience, just the gathering or unification of mind, it actually ends up being more of a predominant experience than the touching. Now, they're not different, right? So there's, just to sort of use conventional terms, there's the touching of the air coming coming in and out of the nostrils, and then there's the fact that the mind is unified or concentrated in that experience, right? Because we can know mind states too, right? Like if you're really angry, can you know that? Yeah. Or if you're really dull, can you know that experience? Yeah, we can know the experience of dullness. We can use know the experience of restlessness. And we can also know the experience of concentration or stillness or samadhi is the Pali word we use, Sanskrit word. So, and then as that continuity of mindful attention with the breath continues, then actually what we end up being attentive to is the stillness of the mind or the unification of the mind, the non distractedness of the mind itself, is the object of awareness. That's what we're paying attention to, not the breath. It's not like the breath isn't there, but it's like what's really obvious, predominant, in terms of the field of awareness, is the fact that the mind is concentrated and still and peaceful and unified and whole, and beautiful, literally beautiful, in an inner sense, not like a beauty, beautiful picture or beautiful scenery, but there's a there's a sort of a deep appreciation of this gathered, unified mind. And so the mind takes itself up, you know, it's not a great way to say it, but the mind takes itself up like the mind in its pure state, that is what it's aware of and to the degree it's really aware of that, then it's not aware of other things. In the same way, like when we're really aware that we're reading a novel, and we're aware of the story, so much that we're not aware that we're reading a novel, right? We're so in the story, whether it's a movie or a book or whatever it is, that we're not aware that we're in the room where we don't even know where we are. We're just that story. Well, it's the same thing. And it's refreshing to go to a movie and get absorbed in it, or read a book and get absorbed in it. Well, much more so with concentration in meditation because then it's a real vacation from the world including the dying process. So this is one thing that Ajahn Chah taught the woman to get some distance, some space from being overwhelmed by the painful emotions and the painful sensations that were arising for her in the dying process. And because she wasn't new to this practice presumably That was a useful instruction for her to sort of, in those moments, you know, it can seem so dramatic and important to worry about this, to worry about your body falling apart, but you know, there's either something you can do about it or there isn't something you can do about it. And ultimately, for every human being that's died, they get to the point where there's nothing you can do about it. And to always be worried about what you can do about it, you miss this other thing, which is to get some space, some distance, some freedom and then with that freedom you have an opportunity one you get immediate refreshment and two then with that distance or that peace then you can begin to open back to the moment but now you're opening to the moment with the body and the mind calm and steady and unafflicted and now you can learn something. You can basically let the body be a teacher. And this is maybe in some ways unique in Buddhism. The world generally and the body specifically isn't really a refuge in the way the Buddha taught. It's like you know in Western culture you know we have yoga, we have health clubs, and we have all kinds of ways to adorn the body and it basically, it's, we have this sense in our culture, or maybe all cultures to some degree, that you know, we can just get this body together and it's, it's going to be a refuge for us. It's going to take care of us. Even though we know intellectually that's just not the truth. How many times we've seen people our own age or younger get in accidents, get sick, die, or whatever. So we know that that can happen to us. We just don't think about it. And we have this sense that you know this body is a refuge. But the body, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, the body is not a refuge. The, the attitude toward the body is the body's a teacher. That this body has something to teach us that we don't understand yet. There's something about this body, like what it actually is right now, not like later or certain times, but the very nature of the body, which is always its nature in any moment of our life, And it's, in a sense, it's always ready to teach us what it can teach us. We just have to be interested in it. And it's interesting, you know, I say this about the mind and I say this about the body. All life long we've had a mind and body, and yet we haven't actually been that interested in it. Now, we do a lot of things with our body. I'm not saying we're oblivious to the body. But, in a sense, to take a few steps back and to be interested in the body without preconceived ideas of what it is, like... Not like conceptually what the body is, but what is the experience of embodiment? Like what is the experience of there being a body here and now, directly? That we haven't done so much. And what the Buddha is saying, what Ajahn Chah is repeating to this woman on her deathbed is, basically, let the body be your teacher. So in that direct experiencing of the body, what does it teach us? What does the body teach us? you can reflect on that right now directly and then over even using your thoughts about the past, what has your body taught you? For example, you know, we could just bring to mind the innumerable body-based experiences we've had. All the tastes that we've tasted, all the smells we've smelled, all the sights we've seen, all the sounds we've heard, all the touches we've had, smooth touches, rough touches, cool touches, hot touches, right? We've had a lot of physical experiences through the five senses, right? And what have all of that what has all of that accumulated to? Where is all of that? I mean we've had infinite almost infinite numbers of physical experiences. So there's something inherently ephemeral about our physical experiences of sight and sound and smell and taste and touch. They're clearly something. I touch this lectern, you know, and I have this, that hard, smooth, little cool feeling in that, that grip, right? But now it's gone. You know, every experience, even our really wonderful experiences of physicality we've had ecstatic dance or lovemaking or eating ice cream or tobogganing down a hill on a perfect winter afternoon or something like that everything has gone and we can bring up memory of them right but that's a experience here and now so just contemplating the body and the experiences of the body we get this very undeniable, and it's actually profoundly unsettling in some ways, um, experience, or re- realization, I should say, that the body is insubstantial. The experiences of the body, the experience of the body is insubstantial. One of the things that appears as our mindfulness gets a little more steady is uh, our whole sort of experience of the body becomes much more energetic, and we see that, like, when we attend to sensation, painful sensation, one, one way it can be like this huge edifice, like a mountain of pain. But we look at it another way, and it's just this, like, sea foam. Like, uh, it may be intense, it may be unpleasant, but, like, you put your hand right through it, it, you can't find it, it doesn't have a center. It's more like there's an orb of physicality. Because so much of the sense of the structure of the body, the, the shape of the body, it comes from the mental image of the body, not from the experience of the body. It's like we have been trained to experience or to see or understand the body in a particular way. And it's a, it's a bit of an imprisonment of the body, actually. The concepts we have about the body, it sort of imprisons or contains the experience, limits the experience of the body. So the body can teach us how insubstantial it is. The body can teach us how ungovernable it is. Like, I have neck pain. I've had it the last few days. I tried to do some sit-ups, and I think I strained my neck. That will teach me. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and so I realized, like, I would like that to go away, and I've been doing all sorts of things, trying to find just the right trigger point, you know, to release that whole whatever, not, but it's not governable. I'm not in control. I can't just say, okay, stop now. I mean, if it were my body, <laughs> you, you would think you could do something with it, but there's a lot that we can't do with the body. You can't, like when we're getting sick, we can't just say, no, I, th- I don't think I'll do that now, <laughs> <laughs> or getting old for that matter. So the body also teaches us how ungovernable it is. Like, all we can really do is just submit. We have indigestion, we submit. We get a cold, we submit. This doesn't mean we don't, you know, you can do whatever you want. But it's going to take its own path to a large degree. Same with the aging process. You know, all the different ways that the body sort of has its own trajectory. doesn't matter who our hairstylist is, you know, it's like different parts of our hair stands up or, you know, the shape of our body or things like that. It's just like nobody's in charge of it. It's just expressing its nature, you know. In Western scientific terms, you say, well, it's that genetic expression and we can blame, it, blame our ancestors or our diet as a young person or whatever. But so... The body teaches us this, and Ajit is suggesting to the woman, well, let the body teach you, because the more we let the body teach us this, the more the mind generalizes and realizes that all of nature is teaching us this, not just the body, but of course at the, in the dying process, the body is a very obvious thing. The ungovernable nature of the body is a very obvious thing. The ephemeral nature of the body, how it's just falling apart, is a very obvious thing. I saw my dad this morning, I saw another good friend who's in the hospital, cancer has returned, not doing well at all uh, later this afternoon. And it's just so apparent, especially with my friend who's, you know, about my age, and just to see her body falling apart is just it's just really interesting. To see somebody who's very alive, intelligent, you know, her life energy, at least as, it is, as it, it is expressed through her mind, her eyes, you know, it's very bright, but her body is falling apart. And uh, just to see that, that ephemeral, ungovernable, insubstantial nature of our experience, what does that lead the heart to do? It lets go of attachment. It lets go of identification. It doesn't really make sense when we look carefully to get identified, attached to things that are ungovernable, impermanent, ephemeral. It doesn't. But we do get attached because we don't see it that way. So this is just interesting that in this time, first the, uh, the Ajacha, rather, Encouraging the woman to get some peace, some space of mind by just dropping the world. Don't worry about your kids right now. Don't worry about your body right now. Don't worry about birth or death. Just be with the next in-breath. Just be with the out-breath. Put it all down. So basically, training the mind, encouraging the mind to retreat back in on itself. The heart to retreat back in on itself. And experience moments of complete letting go of the world. This is what we call in Buddhism moments of deep samadhi and the peace that comes from that deep samadhi. And not to just stay there forever because we want to use that peace then to open to things, not to retreat, but to open to things as they are so that nature, the nature of the body and mind, can teach the mind lessons. Lessons that lead to the letting go of attachment the putting down of all holding all attachment all grasping and clinging because otherwise we get dependent on samadhi and then somebody interrupts her samadhi you know a truck drives by or in her case strong physical pain comes up and disturbs the concentration you know she's back struggling in the world wanting things to be but they're not like wanting the body to be permanent when it's not wanting the body to be pleasant when it's not but instead, we, if we can, we cultivate samadhi, and we don't want to start when we're on our deathbed. We want to start now. It's like somebody told me once this great proverb that, uh, you know, the best time to have planted a tree is, let's say, a hundred years ago. But the second best time is now, right? If you didn't get around to planting the tree a long time ago, you could plant it now. So it's the same thing with developing the skill of of finding peace in the heart itself by putting down the world for a period of time. And then when we have that skill, then we go back into the world now with a balanced, calm, steady attention, and we basically are inviting the world of experience to teach us what it has to teach us. And basically, in short, it's teaching us it's okay to let go. Letting go is the way. You don't need to grasp. You don't need to hold. You don't need to fear. You don't need to get identified with thoughts of being needy or any thought whatsoever. The mind, heart doesn't need to hold to anything. We just think we have to hold to things, but we don't. And uh, well, maybe I'll just uh, read a little bit from the book and then open it up. So the title, again, is Our Real Home. And it's interesting, You know, the, I think the way to translate that, our real home is the experience of letting go. Letting go happens in two ways. There's the initial letting go we learn just by bringing the attention to the breath or to some loving-kindness phrase, for example, or just any aspect of our experience so consistently and uh, wholeheartedly, that in order to do that, we have to let go of everything. So one way of letting go is to take a hold of something, right? You take a hold of something wholeheartedly, you have to let go of everything else. That's the initial way of letting go. The second, more profound way of letting go is, with that steadiness we get from the limited way of letting go, we turn back to the world of our experience as it actually is, basic mindfulness practice, And we investigate the experiences of the moment and see that they're ephemeral and ungovernable and impersonal. And seeing our actual experience as it actually is, is the cause for the letting go. But this letting go we don't do. This deeper kind of letting go happens when the mind or the heart is seeing things as they are, seeing the process nature of experience. So let me just read a few sentences from Ajahn Chah, and then we'll see what other people have to say. The Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in this world can maintain itself in any single state for long. Everything experiences change and deprivation. This is the fact of life we cannot remedy. But the Buddha said that we can do, what we can do is contemplate the body and mind to see their impersonality, to see that neither of them is me nor mine. They have only a provisional reality, like your house. It's only nominally yours. You couldn't take it with you anywhere. The same applies to your wealth, your possessions, and your family. They're yours only in name. They don't really belong to you. They belong to nature. Now, this truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same boat, even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples. They differed from us only in one respect, and that was their acceptance of the way of, th- their acceptance of the way things are. They saw that it could be no other way. And then a couple pages later. So, let go. Put everything down. Everything except the knowing. Don't be fooled if visions or sounds arise in your mind during meditation. Lay them all down. Don't take hold of anything at all. Just stay with this unified awareness. Don't worry about the past or the future. Just be still, and you will reach the place where there's no advancing, no retreating, no stopping, where there's nothing to grasp or cling to. Why? Because there's no self, no me or mine. It's all gone. The Buddha taught us to be emptied of everything in this way, not to carry anything around, to know and having known, let go. Now, it's interesting, because this, given how we've been trained, can sound scary, you know, letting go until there's nothing. But remember, we know, all of us already know, have made the correlation between suffering, just existential suffering in this case, and a sense of being alienated or separate or apart, right? So, intellectually, we know that somehow that has to be healed, that sense of separation, that sense of being alone in a world we can't control, has to be resolved, right? Because otherwise, the only thing we imagine that's going to save us is some sort of magical thinking that we're going to go to this place this utopian place where we're going to have, as an individual, I'll have everything I want. You know, and we call this heaven or something like that. And we have these imaginations that me as an individual will have everything I want. But if you look at any of the mystical traditions, even those mystical tr- traditions that have concepts of heaven, but when you actually read what the saints say, you know, they're talking about a profound unification that completely destroys any sense of a self who's going to be saved, you know? And I I think you find it almost in all traditions. So this process of letting go isn't specific to Buddhism, it's general to any human being that has realized the resolution of our basic existential problem of being apart. There has to be this profound letting go. Otherwise, there's no resolution. The individual can never resolve the existential problem of being separate. Is that, it makes sense. I mean, just on an intellectual level, it makes sense, right? How could the individual, me, resolve the experience of being apart? That concept, that construction that arises through grasping of being apart and me wanting to get rid of this feeling of being apart part, that has to be abandoned. The whole idea of me be, being a part who needs to resolve being a part, that has to be abandoned, has to be put down. And that's what Atacara is saying here. He goes on and says, Realizing the Dhamma, this practice, the path to freedom from the round of birth and death, is a task we all have to do alone. So keep trying to let go and understand the teachings. Now remember, he's telling this to an older woman on her deathbed. Put effort into your contemplation. Don't worry about your family. At the moment, they are as they are. In the future, they will be like you. Now again, that sounds a little harsh. But in a way, what what gift can a dying person leave behind? They can model using that experience to realize a peace that's unshakable, right? That to be at peace with letting go of everything. That would be very useful. I mean, imagine if since the time of birth, a couple times a year, because, you know, believe it or not, people are dying all the time. It's amazing how we miss that fact. Um, But imagine if from birth, a couple times a year, we are around people in a difficult dying process who exhibited real peace and ease and love in that process. Oh, we would not have a lot of neurotic fear about death. You know, we just, we'd have a lot of wisdom if that were the case. Just a little bit more here. Buddha, the Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's the way it is. And it's the same for everyone in the world. So don't grasp at anything. So I'll leave it here. We have about ten minutes. If you have any questions about the talk tonight or any experiences from your own life you'd like to share your own experience of... of, uh, those two kinds of letting go that I've talked about or anything that seems relevant what comes to mind yeah say your name
0: I'm Jean um, I've been struggling because I've been a runner my whole adult life and I've been struggling because I haven't been able to run the last few months because I'm getting older and muscles are doing things they're not supposed to do and I've been really resistant to this I've been angry I see people running I'm like how oh, she gets to run it I don't know <laughs> But, you know, this has been a great lecture for me, because I've been starting to say, this is just how it is now, and this is just how my body is today, and hopefully tomorrow I can run. But, you know, it's been, this has really just expanded that to such a greater degree of really letting go of my whole body and the control, I think, that I have over it. But I just, I hadn't quite thought of it in these terms of the separation of the mind and the body, and how I do think I have control over my body. I think if I work hard enough, I will get my legs right back and I can run, but... It has been a really big process of letting go. Thank you for the gift of
1: helping me to let go. Into yeah. Prayer. Yeah. Boy, well, these teachings are ancient and uh, we just need to keep hearing them and uh, just be willing enough, be interested enough to reflect. Like, is this true? Because it does seem like we do have some control. And we do. I mean, there's a little play there, like how we, you know, take care of the body matters. But even that is conditioned. You know, like whether we take care of the body or don't, even that's conditioned. Like, uh, for a long time in my life, I got a lot of exercise. But for the last 20 years, I haven't done much. And I got away with it because I had done a lot before. And uh, now, you know, as I get a little older, you know, I need to do more. But it's just interesting, like, even on that level of habit, it's not so easy. You know, I always used to think of myself as being disciplined. But it's just, it's not so easy for me just to do what I think I should do. You know, I I have to negotiate with all the inertia in my mind, all the conditioned habits. Everybody gets a seat at the table, including the habit that thinks I should get in shape, right? That's just one of many habits. There's all these other habits Like, oh, you worked hard today, you should just rest or just, you know, chill out. So they all get to come on the table You know, and something comes out of that. You know, I either do or don't, you know, do exercise. And it's like a real humility to understand, like, what is this life that's being lived here? Because we conventionally think, well, I'm living this life here. And then we just imagine, well, I didn't run tonight, or I didn't work out tonight. I guess I didn't want to work out tonight. But if we were really honest, we would have seen all those habits at the table sort of fighting it out. And one of them has more momentum than the other habits, and that's the one that wins the day, you know. And that was the one to say, "Well, let's see what's on the internet," <laughs> <laughs> or in the fridge, or you know, or whatever. <laughs> other thoughts people have. Yeah, Paul. Um, I think you once referred to one of this, referred to our
0: individual patterns as addiction
1: I, heard it. I think so, yeah. And I
0: think my biggest struggle for now is that I have an addictive personnel which uh, kind of colors the the, the uh, you know, in a negative way. And then I fall prey to, um, this disappointment which blocks me uh, giving myself any credit for accomplishing some things right up. And, uh, I find myself disappointed, uh, fairly often, uh, uh, getting stuck. The moment where I can look and say, I learned so much. This is very helpful. Uh, and, you know, Carl Jung said, addicts don't like being in their own bodies. Yeah. Which is very descriptive of the depth of the struggle of the nature. Over habitual head, and uh, it's been a source of uh, frustration and pain. But I get to give up. I'll uh, um, keep on keeping on.
1: And what I know part of the fix is sit long. Yeah, and what you do when you sit too is really important. Remember those two types of letting go, because it's really important. A lot of people who have done study and thought deeply about, like, your situation, we tend to want to go right into the transformation aspect, the wisdom part of the practice, where because we know where the problem is. Like, you know where the problem is. It's this addictive thing, and you want to correct it. But actually, that desire to transform that addictive pattern... Is based on aversion because of the suffering involved in that addictive pattern. So, the first thing that really helps uh, us do the deeper transformation is we need some peace. We need some relief from the pain of that addictive pattern. And, you know, in a kind of archetypal way, we need to be held by the mother or by the, you know, proverbial grandfather, grandmother. And say and be told it's okay. And that's why, like in religious spiritual traditions, there are a lot of archetypes of that, you know, being held, being protected. We create ideas of God, loving gods that are God that will take care of us. Because we really need that kind of healing. That's what you get actually from samadhi practice, that's what you get from a good prayer practice, but where you're you're basically generating beautiful states of mind, and abiding in that beautiful state of mind, and by really being in that beautiful state of mind, you're letting go of that pain of addiction for a while. But you're getting some real peace, some real distance from it, and real healing, forgiveness. I mean, all the things we all kind of know about, but we really need. And then when we've touched some healing, some amount of healing, then that's the time to investigate the pattern and see through it. Because now we're feeling some peace, some contentedness. Now we can look at that addictive pattern with more balance. But if we're right in the middle of the pain, the pain distorts the clarity of the mind. So we can't actually understand deeply where the cause of the addictive pattern is. Because it requires a real depth of seeing, And if the aversion is there distorting the scene, we won't see it. We'll miss it. We keep missing it. And basically, we think, I'm to blame or you're to blame. So we externalize the blame and we miss seeing how the mind is creating its own hell. Like the sense of lack that drives so many addictive behaviors, that sense of lack is being generated right here in the moment. It has to be seen, but it's very subtle. So first we need some healing so the mind becomes the heart body mind becomes more settled peaceful content and then instead of just abiding in that contentment we bring we use it to investigate we don't we, we don't drop that interest that that sense of looking deeply but we want to first uh have some peace and that's the trick. So that's why any really effective spiritual path will have both of those qualities. They'll have a, a really powerful investigation part to it, seen through, seen clearly. But it will also have a healing part that brings some inner peace, contentedness, forgiveness, um, balancing. Because without that, there's really no investigation possible. Maybe time for one more comment. Yeah, Julie.
0: Um, my father is having a uh, terminal knee problems.
1: Maybe a little louder.
0: My father is having uh, really bad knee problems, and he's being advised by his doctors to do some various different techniques, but he's very resistant to it, and it's causing a lot of difficulty for my family, my like my mother. And so, just how do you help with that, or where is that? Is that aversion on his part?
1: Yeah. I mean, what is deeper, more deeply conditioned in our mind than pain is bad? I mean, that is such a deep, deep conditioned pattern, to hate pain, to be afraid of pain, to assume it's bad. But pain is just pain. You know, it's just intense sensation, unpleasant sensation. But we don't need to um, judge it. It doesn't mean we should do something about it. Pain ultimately is just information, right? It's just saying that uh, when things are like this, it feels like this. <laughs> That's what pain is. It's just information. And so the question is, what's the best way for your father to hold or relate to the pain? So there's two things. You know, if you can do something about the pain, by all means, do something about the pain. But in any case, while there is pain, get really interested in how it really matters how you relate to the pain. Hating the pain is the cause for this experience. Allowing the pain to be what it is creates this other experience. Which do you prefer? Because a lot of our suffering is our resistance to the pain. We may not be able to do anything with pain, but we can do something about the resistance to the pain. We don't have to resist pain. It doesn't mean that we're not going to, you know, try to use some medical procedure to release the pain. But we don't need to hate the pain. Because that that's, ends up being actually more painful than the pain, the physical pain itself. We have to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds, let go the words. Maybe take a easy breath together. And again, just appreciating being in this community, appreciating these wise teachings that have been handed down by the women and the men who have done their practice before us, generation by generation. It's always useful to remember they had busy lives, complicated lives, and yet one way or another they cultivated this wisdom, this compassion through their own efforts, their own insight, somehow shared that so that others got it too, passing it down. And now it's our turn to do our best to cultivate mindful attention, kind, wise, mindful attention, to gain insight, to be the causes for peace in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so.